Hi everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this program, we aim to ask some of the big questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible this year. We also aim to discuss some of your questions as well. So if you have any questions as you're reading through, please pop them in the comment section down below, or you can always email us your questions too at hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. For now though, if this is your first time here, my name's Corey, and I'm always joined by Matlock, who's my husband. Hey, Matlock. How are you doing? Good. Good. What's our, for... What was our reading? Oh yeah, okay. Week? So today we read 1 Chronicles 10 yeah. and 2 Chronicles 9. So Still good stuff. A lot of Chronicles. Still good history. A, a lot of history stuff, Lots like I said of last David. week. Yeah, of course. Lots of right. David this week. That's right. We're, we're back, we're visiting it's David good. Again. It's good because Chronicles was written for a different reason than King. So it's good to revisit this from a different angle. Indeed. Right. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So our big question today is going to be about the temple replacing the tabernacle because that's always really interesting uh, to look into. We're going to be taking a look at, we're going to be questioning really God, some of God's choices in today's program, uh, why he would have rejected Saul, but accepted a very sinful and seemingly inept David. We're going to be taking a look at the reasoning for First and Second Chronicles. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at the census that David uh, did of Israel, did God incite David, did Satan incite David, and why would Israel have to pay for David's sin? That doesn't seem fair. All those questions and more coming up on today's show. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, well, I'll open up. Perfect. All right, so this has to do with First and Second Chronicles. Okay. Both books. Fair enough. What is the purpose of First and Second Chronicles? First and Second Chronicles. Yeah, because a lot of people, uh, the first time you're reading through the Bible, you'll go First and Second Samuel. Okay, makes sense. First and Second Kings. Okay, makes sense. And then you hit First Chronicles and you're like, wait, we're going back through yeah. all of the things that we just learned in Samuel and Chronicles. Uh, Samuel and King, sorry, but Chronicles was written at a different time period and for a different reason than the books of the Kings. Uh, so Chronicles was written after the returned exiles from Babylon. So at the end of Second Kings, we have Jerusalem being destroyed by Babylon and the people going into the Babylonian exile. Uh, we learn with Ezra and Nehemiah this and Daniel, this exile lasted 70 years, and then some of the exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem. So First and Second Chronicles was written to this new generation of Israelites back in the land. Um, and you'll notice as you read through First and Second Chronicles that the themes in First and Second Chronicles make a lot of sense from this standpoint, because it focuses mainly, these books focus mainly on the kings of Judah and Jerusalem specifically, which is where the people were allowed to return to, to Jerusalem. And First and Second Chronicles focus on themes of restoration, of evil, repentance, and God's mercy to restore, to save a remnant, to bring back. Um, all of these things that would have been encouraging to a first generation of people living in the land now as returned exiles. It focuses on themes of um, how to not repeat the past, <laughs> essentially. How did we get to the point of exile anyway? How can we not return to the point of exile? So yeah, First Chronicles, a written to a different generation, a later generation of people, uh, drawing out those themes that would have been pertinent to them and to their life. Who do you think authored it? 
Uh, the, the traditional author is Ezra. Right. Ezra. And during the rebuilding of the temple. So it all pertains yes. to that. Yes. Right. And hence why there's musicians <clears throat> and a whole bunch of people within the temple. Yes. Right, that are listed. Within. Yes. Right. Lots of lists. Yes. Which are really, <laughs> yeah, really important. Yeah. Even for, less important for us, but important for the purpose of the book. Yes. And it still does helpful things for us, I think. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> okay. So I want to ask you then sure. on that on that theme of lists. Okay, right. Because there are a lot of lists. Yes, there are a lot of, yeah. Why were genealogies, these lists, so important to Israel? All right. Well, these lists are all lists. Okay, more than just genealogies, but all lists. Okay, well, it's really interesting now because you have like the list of priests, musicians, and people just working in the temple in general in, in, that are listed among there. But at the very beginning, for the uh, chapters one to eight, one to nine, yep. are literally just the genealogies from Adam yes. all the way back to right to David and Saul. Um, and uh, we know that through history, and the reason why there's genealogies in the New Testament stuff like that is that, and what Paul talks about is that the genealogies are there. Israel was established so that the Messiah could come through them for mm -hmm. humanity. In other words, the genealogy was established to track, uh, basically keep a line of when the Messiah would come. And that's the reason why you have uh, kings, right? And uh, in, the, in the genealogy, because the Christ typologically is supposed to be, uh, the Messiah is supposed to be a, pr a priest king. So that he has to have become descendant of kings. So there's a whole reason, uh, typological reason why you have from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? With, uh, you know, you will bite my, uh, what is it? You will bruise my, uh, you will stomp on my head, but I will bruise your heel. That whole concept, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it seems like genealogies began there from that very moment because they're waiting for this Messiah to come through and they're tracking the male lines through there and it keeps going all the way up you know, into the, through the kings. And then through this ge ge genealogical process, you know, you have uh, kings and prophets are all kind of like listed among there. And then it, it draws out this great typology that Christ is a, uh, a priest king. Right. Right. So it was all for, kind of like for this drawn out purpose, essentially for that. Uh, number two, it also knows that who's Israel. That's another reason. So you have this, you know where you come from. So in terms of like national uh, variety, or even just national like honor and respect and just like notoriety, you know that where you come from and who's mm -hmm. in your line and what tribe you are, what, who's in there. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of, it almost helps foster community mm -hmm. in a real way because they're all part of the same family. So in a sense, it is a type of, God's people to come. And you see this, to get too off base, but it's connected. You see this with, um, uh, I think it's Genesis uh, 15 and 17, you know, and also Galatians 3, where you have God's people with Abraham are all that who believe, and then whoever circumcised or in the covenant is all, who, is all who's part of Israel. Mm -hmm. And you have a very similar typology here, where it's like the genealogies reflect who's all part of Israel, and in, in our context, whoever believes is all part of God's people. Mm -hmm. So you have this parallel of being, um, we are all connected to Adam, right? Uh, throughout and, and through the, through the, through belief in Jesus Christ. So genealogies help represent for people that they're all related. They're all related. You know, they're all of the same blood, essentially. Yeah. And in our case, we have a spiritual genealogy through 
through Adam, through Abraham. Yes. Uh, now we actually have a bloodline genealogy too, not to say that you know there was multiple Adams. Um, but yes, that's what I would say is that it's 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 related in a sense. It touches on the gospel. Yeah, a I, there's way. a couple of things that that are going on, right? Because you have that connection to history. Here's what happened. Right. Here is what it means. Right. Right. And 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 that's what you're talking about. And I and I really like that concept because it also that that's true for us today too. Right. Right. Here's what happened. Here's what it means. You're connected to it. You have a spiritual heritage right. now. Um, and then also from a very practical perspective, just on a smaller scale, when you're thinking of this generation of Israelites that Chronicles is written to, they have just come back after 70 years gone from the land. The land of Israel was divvied up very specifically to different tribal territories. Right. So now you can't just resettle the land and take whatever territory that you want if you're trying to follow God. Right. They had to try to figure out where their boundaries were. And, and if you were a Levite and you wanted to serve as a priest in the newly built temple, you had to be able to prove your lineage as a Levite because they didn't want someone who wasn't allowed under the Mosaic Covenant serving in the temple. So they were trying to track all their lines as well. Right. So you've got the overarching, what does it mean? And then the very practical, what did it mean? Right. Both going on That's at great, the same yeah. time, which is cool. It's very cool. But yeah, that I think that pretty much covers it. Like, yeah, why I are think they, so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, I got a question for you. Please. All right. How come Saul is abandoned by God for immoral behavior, but David is let off the hook with adultery and the murder of Uriah? Shouldn't he be stoned because he the law says so? And why does the author of Chronicles omit this account? Why does the author of Chronicles... Okay, yeah. so Chronicles... Chronicles is more of a select history. So it's only going to be drawing things out that it, it wants us to focus on. So I, the sin of David is very well uh, spoken of, like very thoroughly spoken of earlier in the scripture. So I don't think right. we can fault the author of Chronicles on this for not really going into the same amount of intense detail. However... Saul isn't abandoned by God just for his immoral behavior. It sounds as though like we're trying to say, oh, David's sin and Saul's sin was the same. It was not. David's failure was absolutely a moral failure, but Saul's failure was a rejection of God as authority. So when you go back to the account of Saul, uh, when he is rejected by God finally as king, which yeah. is in 1 Samuel 15. 15. Yeah. God has sent him on a mission um, to a, a mission of judgment. It's a very unpleasant account. A mission of judgment against the Amalekites. He's supposed to wipe them all out, take nothing. Uh, and he doesn't. He takes the king, arguably as a trophy, and he allows the army to take spoils of war. And then... Saul marches to Mount Carmel, climbs up it, and erects a monument with his own name on it. Just like the monuments with pagan kings and pagan gods' names on them, that Israel was originally commissioned to go into the land and tear down. So Saul is now rebuilding ancient markers that Israel was supposed to tear down. And what this means is that Saul had completely rejected the authority of God. And this is drawn out for us by the prophet Samuel, who says, 
one of the most amazing things ever that still applies and is wild to me. Yeah, for Samuel 15, 23. 22 and 23, Samuel replies to Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. So Saul's sin was not just a moral failure. It was elevating himself to the place of God. His rebellion against God was like divination. It was like getting spiritual direction from somewhere else. Right. Guess where else? Right. His heart. And his arrogance was like the evil of idolatry because he was elevating his own opinion over God's opinion. So Saul rejected God. God rejected and Saul. That's what goes against the question. The question words it is like, how come God abandoned? It's like, well, hold on. God, yes. Saul rejected God. Start there. Yes. Right? So it's not that God abandoned him. God accepted this rejection of himself. And as such, he's like, all right, all right. well, you, I reject you as king. That's right. You reject me as king. I reject you as king. Yeah. And, and it does tell you something that's really interesting. Is like, I think today, you know, I see it a lot. And it's that we often view pride as dismissible. Oh, everyone's got pride, let's say, to some extent. It's, and it's then the common human experience. We do all have pride. Right. But, but then here you have pride that's gone haywire. Yeah. Right? That's worse than David murdering, committing adultery. Yeah. Well, because Cause, cause then there's no repentance at this yeah. point. You see what I mean? Like, so you think about that and you're like, well, obviously David had pride to do those things. That's not to say that he didn't. Mm -hmm. But the point is that pride out of when pride's out of control it actually leads to worse things um it's worse on the moral scale it's it's from which all evil can can happen is pride right is the it's the root of all evil so anyway it's just interesting to think about because i think we often view pride as almost being dismissive oh you got everyone's got pride you know to some extent but it's like no it's it is fundamentally the at the core of what's all evil it's why god jesus calls us evil so we have to Take that into account, I think, very seriously, because pride can get out of control, and that's literally the culture we live in. Yeah, and and I mean, lest we say that Saul repented and God didn't heed him, Saul does ask forgiveness. He yeah. does confess his sin, but he also throws in excuses. So Saul's response is in 1 Samuel 15, 24. He says, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. So it's that pointing, like, he's yeah. like, I did do it, but it was because it of that. It wasn't sincere. I was afraid yeah. of them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. So that, that sounds good, right? Yeah, sort of. But then it continues on because it's like, oh, well, he desires to worship the Lord. Yeah. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, okay, then, then it's the tearing of the robe incident, okay? I'm just going to skip down just for the sake of time. <laughs> when we get to verse 30, Saul replies, I have sinned, but please 
Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So he wants in the eyes of the people to still be acceptable, to yes. still be seen. So it's all about how is this going to look, yeah. which is why he blames it on the, the his people. sin yeah. anyway. He's like, oh, it, the, I was afraid of the men. I was afraid of what they were going to think. I was afraid of what they were going to say. So I just let them do it. And now he's afraid of what it's going to look like. Yeah. Not that he's been rejected, yeah. but how it's going to look. Yeah. Whereas when David is caught, he does full-blown repentance. Um, and it's not about how he looks. He, he's afraid when we go to Psalm 51 that he wrote when he's caught in this sin. He's afraid that God is going to remove his Holy Spirit from him. He's afraid that what happened to Saul is also going to happen to him. And he fully repents uh, and is more transparent and accepts. He's not He's not blaming anyone else at this point. Right. So there is a fundamental difference. And then also, too, there's a, one little caveat in this question. Shouldn't David have been stoned? <coughs> for doing for doing what he did. I haven't really thought about this before. Right. I haven't really like spent time thinking about this. Have you? Right. No, not particularly. But when you think so, there is one aspect to it mm -hmm. where it's um his his child dies. Yep. Right. So it's like even though David is in a sense spared, it's like his children his child dies for his immoral behavior. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, there was blood that was spilt in a way because of this whole fact. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't like, oh, it didn't have to be necessarily by stoning per se. That was just the method at the time. But someone did die on his behalf um, if, if for him. And I'm sure that would be, as a parent, that'd be worse than you dying, quite frankly. Um, so that would be one thing I would say, is that just, just because the law says two stone doesn't mean that's the only form of execution. That's just the, the main method of execution that you should have, that, that, that was used at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I should say that it, the law actually was fulfilled in that process mm -hmm. with his with his son passing away, but uh, God had mercy on David because David is truly yeah. repentant. Well, David is a, like a genuinely repentant person. We do see God having mercy in in like manner throughout. I mean, another area where people like to throw throw that shade <laughs> throw that shade, if you will, yeah. is uh, with Aaron right. in the incident of the golden calf, where God strikes down people. Uh, who were inciting the rebellion. They they wanted Aaron to make the golden calf, but God doesn't kill Aaron for making the golden calf. Even though he was a leader, he was the high priest, he should have known better. He did know better. Um, but later on, we learned that Moses prayed on behalf of Aaron and God honored that. Right. God showed mercy to Aaron. So there are instances where God shows mercy and he chooses to show mercy based off of the condition of our heart yep. yep all right so i have another question for you i think that was good related to first chronicles 13 okay slowly going through chronicles why did god's anger burn against yuza for trying to stop the ark from falling falling uh, over so think about i this. hate this story i know so the ark's about to fall yeah this guy's like no and he comes over no. and he stops and he's gosh okay so what's going on there just a moment of silence for Uzzah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he tried yeah was it because it sounds like he's that God's anger burned against him? So it sounds like he didn't really have full respect to some extent. What do you think is going on there? So unfortunately, Uzza was like his judgment was a product of the whole process of what was going on here. Right. 
And I still, this is mind boggling that this happened. This right. is just a sign of the times. David should have known better. Even David was afraid after this. He was like, yeah. I don't want this thing. <laughs> Get some Levi. No. <laughs> Get some I'm not. I'm not keeping this near my house. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it all sounded like, like uh, rainbows and unicorns until Oza dies, right? Yeah. And then David realizes, oh, right, God is holy. And there's a, there's a process that this is supposed to happen. Um, so... This is all wrong, the bringing back of the ark. And uh, what I mean is that it's on a cart. Right. It's not covered. Yeah. That, I mean, it, I, it doesn't, it, they moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Aho guarding it. Uh, and David and the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs, with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. Why is the situation wrong? It's not supposed to be carried by oxen. It's not supposed to be carried by a cart. It's supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. Specifically, I believe the Kohathites. So they're not following the protocol of the ark. Right. They're worshiping God in the way they want to worship God. Right. Not in the way God God said to worship God. Right. And there are deadly consequences to that. Right. So Uzzah is unfortunately a product of this where God is emphasizing his holiness in a time that underemphasized his holiness. Right. Now this is very striking for us, you know, in the West who have basically it's very difficult to die with because we have right. comparatively like you have hospitals, you have so many things in place that prevents you from dying. You have 911, right? You have so many mm. things. So it's like, I think it's just much more striking in our culture compared to then when death, death uh, life was cheap, excuse me. Um, comparatively, uh, life is, uh, I'm not saying life is cheap, but you know, at that time, life was basically much cheaper than it is today, uh, practically speaking. But I think too, what you, what you have here is like you, you're saying a lack of understanding of God's holiness. And when God, if, if God's anger burned against Uzzah, it could have just been something in his heart where he just, because we really don't know this guy very well. Um, I don't think it had to do with his heart at all. I think it literally had to do with they were dishonoring the presence of God. Among them, the Ark of the Covenant represented well, the presence of God. Okay, right. And they but, were like, it's like, why did why did um, God strike down um, Nadab and Abihu? Right. Because they offered unauthorized fire and he killed them. Why right. did the Holy Spirit of God kill Ananias and Sapphira? But this one because they lied but, to the Holy Spirit. Right. They disrespected but this is not the, the same presence thing. of God. But this, it's so similar. No, I know it is. But that's what I'm saying. So his anger burned for a reason. Uzzah, yeah. the thing, the ark disrespected falling, the presence right. of but, God. But that, okay, but right. So that is a reason to get angry. <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is, is that Uzzah, it, the condition of his heart wasn't in a sense of I can't go. This is God's completely holy. Okay, that's what you're saying. He didn't have that sense of respect at all. He's like, oh man, I got to stop the presence of God from he, falling. It was just completely, it was just an object. It was an object that was falling. And so he went to stop it from falling. It was just any old object. Maybe. I think, I, so I think that, I'm, listen, we're all- He didn't want it to break. We're, well, exactly. We're speculating. break the presence we're, of God. That's pretty bad. We're speculating here. Right? <laughs> Treating it I, really I know it idol. had like a, appeal, like in his culture stuff, but there was no power in it, right? <clears throat> there was no concept behind it. Anyways, my point here is that like, I think if the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah specifically for doing this, right? Because it's like, it, 
then there has to be something in his heart for the anger to burn. And what it might not have been, maybe it was a lack of understanding and a desire not to understand if the, uh, God's holiness or whatever. But there, I think there must be something more that's just to the story that we're not privy to. Um, Perhaps. As opposed to just being innocent. I think oh, it makes sense. An innocent, innocent fixing. I think this makes sense because I, they're, they're, so like think about, think about the Ark's journey thus far. Yeah. It goes to, it's treated as an idol by Israel. <clears throat> it gets taken captive. Right. It goes to the Philistines, causes outbreaks of plagues okay. and tumors. The get rid of the presence of, presence of this Israelite God. Yeah. So then it comes back to Israel on a cart right. because they're Philistines and they don't know any better and they're not going to carry it. They're not Levites right. on a cart, right? And they send it to, I, I, it, the, the city is escaping my mind, the name of the city. But when it gets to this city, it's a Levitical city from, from if my memory serves me right. Right. And they open it. They right. don't treat it the way it's supposed They should know how to treat it. They open it. A plague breaks out. And a bunch of people die. Right. Okay? So everyone's scared of it. It goes to the city of Kiriath-Jerim. And it's good for a while. And there's blessings that are flowing. And yay! Yeah. So then they treat it. Yeah. Like the Philistines treated it. Right. By putting it on a cart. Like okay, a well, pagan okay, god. This is what I'm saying, though. Guess- and then... So... But... But... But so I I think that this makes sense. I think that Uzza was was just he was the one that happened to touch it. But, but something bad was going to happen. It was going to go down because they were misrespected. They were disrespecting sure. and mistreating the Ark of the Covenant, which they should have known better. All I'm trying to argue is that Uzza's this, Uzza's understanding <laughs> of this, like you said, it was it was taken away for idol worship for being idol worship. Like, sure. I don't know the condition of Uzza's heart and how he perceived sure. the Ark. Yes. What I'm saying is. It, if David touched it, okay. If David went to probably do it, would have died. Okay, or I think he would. Would it be different? No, I'm pretty sure he would have died. Okay, because other people touch it and don't die. So who who touches it and doesn't die? You said they opened the lid. The they died. Went, okay, yeah, a plague. Okay, but not <laughs> just not immediately. I think it was like a thousand of them okay, died. I know, but okay. Okay, I also the Philistines it. open it, but they're not in the covenant. But my point here is he died. Right, but then hey, later on it gets destroyed and everything. Yeah. You have to yeah, just touch yeah. something to destroy it. Okay, it's okay, fair. It's so not like point, you... Okay, so my point here <laughs> is that I'm trying to make is that there was something, there was an underlying thing in, in Uzzah's life. I I don't know. Maybe. I don't think he was completely innocent is all I'm trying to say. I don't think he was like, oh, you know, like I, I don't... Some guy walking by, oh, that's fine. Let me help you with that. Like, I just don't think that that's what it was. I, I just think if God's anger burns like... You know, it is what it is. All right. I, I don't know. But, you know, hey, guess what? We, we agree to disagree Agree to disagree. I think it makes sense. <laughs> you things. think there's got to be something else going on? Of yeah. course, like, yeah, of course all we right. don't know Uzza. I just think, like, poor Uzza. Moment of silence for Uzza. I, 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 fe- I feel bad for him. He's, but... just, a, he's just a jock. <laughs> he, he, was, did... he was not just a jock. <laughs> guarding the... He didn't know that. He was yeah. responsible for guarding the Ark of the Covenant. He thought it was his job. It, like, they put him in charge. Yeah. And he dies for it. And David gets the hint. Yeah. Stop it with this nonsense. All right, all right. He he. David starts treating saying, it better after go. that. Just, a, just yeah. saying. Okay. Okay. A tough a, fruit. All right, let's keep we're going. gonna move on. <laughs> I think it's time to move on from this. Okay. Second right. Samuel twenty four verse one. Okay. Paired with First Chronicles twenty one verse one. Okay. So this is where David takes a census of Israel that he's not supposed to take, of the fighting men specifically, and gets in trouble for it. So here's the question from Jim Skies. 
I would have liked to have seen a discussion of what appears to be a severe discrepancy between 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 and 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. It appears to me to be a translation issue, and some translations deal with it much better than others, but 2 Samuel really leaves a lot to be desired in any English translation I have seen. Maybe you can bring that up in a couple of weeks when we get to 1 Chronicles. We're here, Jim. We're in First Chronicles. So, Matlock, what okay. say you? Oh, let's read these, actually, because I got first... Uh, 2 Samuel 24 up, and then 1 Chronicles 21 up. Yep. So it's both first ones, so let's do this. Okay. Uh, 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beth Beersheba, and number of the people, that I may know the number of the people. As we know, he's not supposed to take a census. Mm. Okay. All right. Now let's go to 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. You know, the Joab's like, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, uh, the king? All of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? So, of course... Joab's like, don't do Joab's it. It's like, this is a bad idea. No. But David's like, I must. Anyways, so, okay. So, so the issue is, Second Samuel says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David. Yes. Against them saying, go and take a census. But First Chronicles 21 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Right, okay. So is it so, God but there's, or is it Satan? Well, there's different vectors there. And by vectors, I mean angles and forces. Sorry, I got my own terms sometimes. Like, what? Yeah, sorry. There's different so, what now? <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> Satan stood against Israel and the Lord incited David against mm -hmm. Israel. Yep. Right. Okay. But is so, it Satan or is it God? Because 2 Samuel says it's God. And yes. First no, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so long story short, uh, I know in the Hebrew, because I, I have to read in Heiser's book, this is one of Heiser's big arguments was that this is uh, Satan and the adver... Because in this word specifically, it's not the Satan. It is a Satan. Which just means adversary. Which just means, means adversary. adversary. That's right. So the word Satan means adversary. Uh, and essentially what Heiser's proposal was, was that Satan here is not the Satan that we read about in the New Testament. It is a adversary, uh, an angel of any kind that God uses uh, at his bidding, essentially, to do his to do his will. Um. So someone, right, so an angel, you know, God uses the angel of the death and the, and the plagues of Egypt, stuff like that. So it is an angel that God deploys, you know, even evil angels have to report to God kind of thing. So this is one of those instances. So in other words, the Lord of the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, right? First and foremost, then Satan stood against Israel because God's like, I'm angry with you. So I'm going to send this, this, this evil, I guess this force against you or whatever it is. Uh, we see something similar to this in Job. When Job was, uh, Satan comes up at the very beginning of the book of Job. Satan's like, oh, the only reason Job's not, you know, blaspheming your name is because you make his life so good. Let me get with him, get, get through with him, and then he'll definitely blaspheme your name and curse you to your face. And God's like, go ahead, he permits it. At the very end of the book, it doesn't even mention Satan at all. It says basically that, oh, and God restored him to his to his uh with the more children and more wealth than he had before 
for all the evil that the Lord brought upon him. Now that word evil there can also be translated calamity or destruction, basically like um, like a physical destruction of a city you think about, okay? Um, so the point I'm bringing up here is that in this similar situation, what you have here is that God permits, so Satan could come up, be like, look, because Satan is the accuser, even if it's the devil or an adversary, as Heiser proposes, where it's just an angel underneath God's will, even if it's the Satan, Satan comes up and is like, he's the accuser, right? So his whole point is that in a court of law, he stands before the judge, these people are doing evil. I see that, right? What are you going to do about it, God? And then God's like, okay, well, do what you need to do. Um, so in a, a long story short, is that you have a very similar situation here, where even if it is Satan, right, as opposed to any adversary against you know, a human adversary, even if it is the Satan, um, you have Satan uh, identifying the faults and failures uh, and sins of Israel for taking the census and God saying, okay, or for Israel for doing whatever, for David's taking the census, but Israel doing wrong things. And God says, okay, we'll do what you need to do kind of thing. And then Satan goes ahead and moves forward with the act. So God permits it. And then because God permitted it, it then says, well, the Lord was the, was the cause behind it. Uh, for his permittance. Mm -hmm. So the two, and essentially, not the two become one, but because the Lord permits things, the Lord gets identified with the cause of the thing. Um, even though that would be a formal cause, it is an indirect cause, but you know, if Satan wasn't evil, then he wouldn't have done it. And it's part, long story short, I think, I don't think that there is a conflict there. No. Even in the angelic realm, or if it's in the human, if it's human realm, there's definitely no conflict. Yeah, I know. Because God, God, routinely we see throughout the old and new testaments but more in the old because there's more history going on so there's more examples of it we see god utilizing both human evil and spiritual evil uh for his will not that he's creating the evil but because he has all knowledge he knows what's going to happen he can see right. the future he can see the past he can modify he can use things evil things for his purposes for for his good and so he seems to do uh, with evil spiritual forces. But but because Israel, they were his people, they are the people of God, permission, like he needs to give permission. He needs to allow things for bad things to happen. Yes, right, <laughs> You know yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, we're not I puppets. like saying it in a very clunky way. Yeah. but We're not puppets, so therefore... Right, our wills will intercede at some point. Yeah, so, so that's interesting. Yeah, so I think yeah. Once again, I don't think that there's a contradiction whatsoever. Uh, like a, it, if the word the uh, if the word a Satan a an adversary is there, that could be it's not necessarily angelic. It could be a human adversary comes yep. up against Israel. Right, in that case, the Lord incites people all the time, and that's just the way it is. If it's an angel, I don't think it's a problem at all. Once again, because mm. the Lord permits, He has to permit things to happen. Mm -hmm. So. At the end, especially in the angelic realm, as we see in Job and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I don't see it as a conflict. It's a bigger, it's a, actually, it brings into question more questions that we're not going to answer we have, today. We have a follow-up question. Oh, though. we do. Okay. All right. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'll ask you the question. Let's do it. All right. This has to do with the same chapter, 2 Samuel 24 to first, the first Chronicles 21. Okay. Was wondering, colon. When David uh, counted Israel, which he wasn't supposed to do, the census, it seemed like the people of Israel suffered badly for David's sin. I do know Israel promised to follow God with Moses. That was broken. But David, 
David's commander didn't want him to do it. Joe App, which you just read. Mm. Thank you for your help. This is by a viewer question by Lou. Lou? Lou. 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 Okay. All right. There's a few different ways that we can tackle this question. But I think the first things first, in both Samuel and Chronicles, um, it's recorded that the adversary or God was angry with Israel and so incited David. Yes. So God's ultimate purpose here is to bring judgment on the people of Israel. We're not told why. We're not told why. This is immediately after the account, or not immediately, but it comes on the tails of the account of God being bringing judgment on Israel because of Saul's sin against the city of Gibeon. They had to deal with that. So right away, the intention of God in this account is to bring judgment on Israel for a certain sin. So that lays the foundation. Now it is true that to bring this judgment on Israel, God had to get David to sin as their king. This is the part that makes us really uncomfortable because we don't like the idea of a group suffering for one man's mistake. But keep in mind, David was not just one man. David was the king of Israel and the people of Israel had asked for a king and God had warned them about having a king in the first place. Okay, so David did have, what, even this is true today, that the decisions that our political leaders and our military leaders make, it affects us. There are consequences on us. This is true in a family situation. If I sin or if I make a decision, whether good or bad, it's going to affect my family. It's going to affect Matlock, Matlock and my children, vice versa. We're in this together. Uh, and we see this uh, with Saul. We see this with David. We also see this in Israel, in Israel's community back in the time period of the conquest when Joshua is leading the Israelites into battle and Achan disobeys God. Just one man disobeys God and they go into battle and they're defeated because Achan's disobedience has separated them from the protection of God. So they have to deal with Achan's sin and all those who are complicit with Achan's sin. So this idea of a group suffering for an individual, that's just well, reality, unfortunately. But also just more than that, I actually think it's the opposite. So uh, to some extent, because Israel has sinned, has done something wrong, and then God permits Satan to go in there to entice David, right? David is the threshold. If David did not act on that, was not enticed, mm -hmm. he he helps Israel not get suffer what the calamity that is to come. So in other in other words, David's a threshold from from if David were to be like, no, I'm not taking the census, and didn't force it, right, right. But okay, but, but what I'm saying, I and I and I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But there's an important authority structure here. Yes, where Israel has put a king as their authority, their go-between between God oh, yes. and Israel. I'm agreeing with that, so, yes. Yes. So yeah. what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to draw out 
is that David's decisions, because he's the authority of Israel, yeah. affects Israel. So God is going through David yes. to bring judgment on Israel. Yes. And David ends up recognizing this. Yes. Right? I guess what I'm saying is that it's also a test on David. David didn't, if, if David had the w desire not to do the census, if he actually went against it, something else would have happened. It would have been a different form. But what I'm saying is, is that, yes, you're right about the, the hierarchical responsibilities that God has put in place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's also, um, what I'm saying is this also a, could be a form of mercy if David had responded correctly. Well, it, it, it still was a form of mercy, even though David did not respond correctly. Even like right. He did what God knew he was going to do. Right. He sinned. He, he did yes. the thing. He yeah. sinned. He counted the men. But um, it was a mercy, I think, be, that God went through David, that he had to go through yes. David because David ends up turning it around yes. for the people. And right, it's right. a lot... It's a lot better than it would have been had David not interceded. So God entices David to sin and so bring judgment on the people. But then David is able, he feels so bad. In verse 16 of 1 Chronicles 21, it says, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, so they went into mourning, fell face down. And David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, I the shepherd have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. So David is willing to stand in and be self-sacrificial, um, self right? which is a very messianic concept. And God then tells David to go build an altar and where, and as such, he stops the plague. He stops right. the famine. So we get this foretaste of a Messiah, but we also see how God utilizes David's godly character to minimize the punishment that was coming on Israel. And again, we don't know why, but there there would have been a reason. Right. And, and, and that's the reason why it's also worse because David, keep in mind here that David is a very repentant person and actually a man after God's heart. Yeah. So by going through David, you're actually have you it's like the not to say it's the best chance, but in, in a sense it's kind of like it's the it's like if anyone is going to do the right decision, it would be David at this point mm -hmm. um, for the people of Israel. So I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, in these last several minutes here, I want to move on to the big question. Okay, sure. The big question. Okay, so I want to discuss with you, Matlock, this concept of the tabernacle being replaced, the tent tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness, right. being replaced with a temple. Because David is so focused on getting this done, on building a huge permanent structure for God. God, of course, tells him no, right. but that Solomon's going to do it. And Solomon does it. And David prepares for it. So right. why did the temple replace the tent tabernacle? Now, to up the ante here, think about the concept of every, every all the surrounding nations, they, they routinely built temples, right? Right. So... If the Mosaic law, if, if one of the purposes of the Mosaic law and the, and the tent tabernacle in the first place was to keep Israel distinct from other cultures, why would becoming less distinct from other nations in building a temple 
be acceptable okay. in this case. Okay, so there's a couple things. One, to add to the distinction part, you've done a study into this more than I have, that the tabernacle actually isn't, reflects Egyptian culture a little bit more than people would like. Yes, it, yes, does. it definitely and, and, does. Yeah, right. So, I, I don't think that it's feasible to say that it does not. Right. It, it does reflect Egyptian Right, so culture. a temple reflecting other cultures, I, I don't think that that's, that's the problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and just to clarify that, yeah. not that it was a copy one for one, but what what it seems to reveal is God using the cultural language of the day to communicate his nature to Israel. Right. So he uses elements of Egyptian culture and he uses elements of other cultures and blends them together to let Israel know he is king, he is God, uh, and and they are now his people. Right. And it's interesting because when you think about it, I've heard people be like, try to make the argument that God never even wanted the temple and he doesn't even doesn't even like the temple. He preferred it being mobile and it moving because, you know, the the the, the symbols behind the tabernacle is that it's made of skin and that it's like a it's kind of like a walking, uh, like living thing kind of thing. Um I I just don't see that because elsewhere he's very <laughs> he's very fond of the temple. So um why would God replace the temple? Well, it's really interesting to think about uh, just moving from a a people who are wandering around the desert and who are essentially uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Vagabonds. Uh, that's not quite the word. I'm nomads. Thinking. Nomads. Thank you. You're people who are nomadic, and as a, as opposed to people who are in the land and they have possession of a land. Uh, and that's really one of the reasons why they're building in the first place. This is the land of Israel. So they have a permanent structure fixated for that as opposed to something that's mobile. Uh, and that's partly too because God has given you the space and you will not move. Like this is it. Like God has given this to us. So it's supposed to be in concept a permanent structure that will not move. And stone is the closest things we have to kind of creating that emblematic public structure, you know, that's that's immobile and fixed and it stands the test of time, so to speak. Um, although books, if we notice, like the Bible lasts longer. But besides that, um, so I think that there's something to do there in terms of this the symbolic uh, movement from a tent to a temple and then from a temple to a people, right? I think that there's something to do with that. Um, and then at the very end of time, as we talked about, there's, there's the second coming of Christ, which is to come, which has its own elements attached to that. Um, but a long, long story short, I think that, that it fosters typology really well. Mm-hmm. So when you read in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Christ, Christ, or sorry, Paul specifically says that you are the temple. Mm-hmm. Like the spirit of the Holy Spirit indwells within you. And together, basically, you're a brick. Uh, your wife's a brick. Like everyone is a brick together building this temple uh, for God. And the Holy Spirit is in the temple and the Holy of Holies and dwells within you. Um, so I think that principle that we together is that we're with one skin. Yeah. You don't have that type of us being built together, right? Yeah. You, you don't have that. Um, so I think it helps this concept of uh, multiple people uh, from basically anywhere coming together to build something up that's fixated and the temple covers the whole earth uh because we're if we're god's temple then we cover the whole earth right and that we're building it up to to god so i think it helps typology a bit 
It also helps this concept of kingdom building. Um, in other words, uh, you're going from having, uh, being, you know, let's say Abraham, he's got sheep, he's got goat, he's trading them around to being a king of, of nations with tons of wealth and uh, tons of power. I'm not saying Abraham didn't, mm-hmm. but essentially the long story short it's is different time, yeah. it's different times. The, the point here is that you're building up to this giant kingdom that's going to, as Daniel talks about, take over the whole world. It's going to occupy everything. So uh, in terms of moving from something that's primitive to something that's established, I think from tabernacle to temple does make sense. Definitely. Definitely. And and um, like, okay, so here's how I see it. There was always supposed to be a permanent place to worship God, right. whether the tent tabernacle was pitched there permanently or whether a temple was eventually rebuilt. Uh, I mean, we get this in Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy um, chapter 12, God is talking about going into the land and destroying the high places and the altars and the sacred stones and the idols and the the, the Asherah poles and the monuments and everything like that. Uh, but then verse four, so Deuteronomy 12 verse four says this, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place, you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to do because the Lord your God had blessed, has blessed you. So there was always supposed to be centralized worship, yes. a place where God would indicate that his name, his His presence should go. Now, in so many ways, the conquest of Canaan failed, right? They, they took land, they established the tent tabernacle at Shiloh, but by the days of Samuel, it was so evil, like the, the, the Israelites were so evil that God allowed the Philistines to come in and destroy Shiloh. And the tent tabernacle survived and the Ark of the Covenant was eventually brought back because in the, in, in, in the Samuels, we read about, um, Samuels and Samuel and even into Kings, we read different places that the tent tabernacle was set up. So it was set up at Nob. It was set up at Gibeon. It kind of moved around. It never had a place after Shiloh. And at Shiloh, they had actually, from archaeological evidence, they had begun to build up walls and permanent structures around it, gates and things like that. We see this reflected when Eli is sitting in the gate, in his seat. The high priest has this seat at the gate of the tent tabernacle. The tent's a tent. It doesn't have a gate, but it did because they had begun to build up permanent structures, but God allowed that to be wiped out. So never had there been this place that God had chosen to put his name. Then that's Sam, uh, sorry, Saul and David's job was to finish the conquest of Israel. Saul gets part of the way there. David gets all the way there where he's able to subdue the Philistines. He's able to really capture the land of Israel and secure its borders. And then God tells David where to build an altar. And he decides, ah, here is going to be the place of the name. It's going to be Jerusalem. 
And Solomon then follows that through with building a permanent temple to mark the place that God has chosen for his name to dwell. Mm. So it becomes the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, the ruler that God made a covenant with that the Messiah is going to come through his house. <coughs> so I think it makes a lot of sense. Yes. In the in the fulfillment. So there's the spiritual aspect of it, and then there's the physical fulfillment of it, which is really interesting. Yeah. I think what sometimes gets people is you see, like from a civilization standpoint, oh, going from tent to temple is like a step up. Then you're just expecting like what's what's bigger than a temple? Well, it's like this giant cathedral that's like it's like something that's always bigger and better um what's interesting is that after temple then after so after uh, tabernacle comes temple then temple comes people yeah so what does that tell you what's bigger and better Mm -hmm. right so it's like it's really about because now it's truly a temple built without human hands it's a temple built by god's hands that's right humans that's (laughs) we become the temple the dwelling place right so that was always the whole point that was mm-hmm. always a point. And so the, the tabernacle and temple were always temporary. They were never seen. Now, granted, we have our churches today, right? And we, we celebrate and we praise God in, in them. Um, not the same as the temple, though, where the presence the of the God temple. would exactly. meet with the people. We don't need a building to meet with God anymore. That's the point of, exactly. you know, when Christ died, the veil of the temple that split the Holy of Holies, the presence, it kept the presence of God away from the people. It ripped open. So now the presence of God is available and not just to the people of Israel, but to the people of God as a whole, the That's people right. who are saved through the forgiveness of Christ and right. through the work of Christ. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it in, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's other things you could think about too um, that can come into this question. Like I said earlier that like, you know, the imp- you always look from a civilization standpoint, it is getting better. Uh, and also typologically. Um, so there's different elements that like God is teaching us something in different ways it also shows that the that the uh, the civil attitude is lower in priority because when you have something that's a public and fixed um here's what i mean by that just so you know because you give me the squinty eyes i give you squinty eyes which is like i don't understand what you mean okay yeah yeah, 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 sorry Uh, (laughs) what i'm saying is is that um you have a fixed structure that's set up that's you know for like like public use yeah that and, and everyone assumes, you know, people say that the church is a building. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, the church is not a building, the church is the people that sure. go within the building. Okay, so it's a concept. Uh, from a civilization standpoint, more structure means stronger civilization. Okay. Okay. So, from a from strictly like civility point of view, I, I, I think that it shows that true society and what God wants from us is just so much, it's so much deeper than just having sweet architecture. Or they're having a public spaces because you know the, the when you look at even the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, the way it's worded is kind of like a temple of God. Absolutely, right? Yep. So temples, you, pretty much all ancient temples, mimicked a Garden of Eden idea. Right. So that you have this idea that the world is a temple in a sense. The Eden, right? Is that the worst? Well, Eden specifically, yeah. Eden specifically, but the idea too is that we are now that we are God's temple together. It's like God's temple is spreading throughout the whole world in this. It's just, when you look at it kind of symbolically, it kind of uh, escalates. But the point here, I'm just, my, my rambling, who cares about my rambling? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it's interesting. I, I, 
I think for the most part, I think it's building up to this idea of what's what does God actually desire? Yeah. And, and and we are vulnerable to the same sin that Israel fell into over and over. And that is taking pride in the temple itself rather than being humbled that the presence of God has chosen to dwell. This is why the temple was destroyed in the Babylonian exile. This is why the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70, because people began to take pride in the temple rather than be humbled by the fact that the presence of the creator of the universe chose to dwell among them. So let's not do the same thing as Christians. Let's not take pride in ourselves, in our physical bodies, in how, uh, you know, righteous our lives might seem, but instead let's be humbled by the fact and, and, and be proud of the fact that the creator of the universe has chosen to dwell in our lives and in our hearts. I right. think that closes it out. I think that's good. For this week. Yeah. All right, guys, if you have any comments or questions, pop them down below. And until next week, happy reading. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.